Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on The Art of Range is Dr. Lynn Hunsinger, a Rostici Endowed Professor in Environmental Science, Policy, and Management at the University of California at Berkeley. And we're visiting in person at the Society for Range Management Conference in Minneapolis, where she's speaking today. Lynn, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tipton. Glad to be here. Your website at UC Berkeley indicates that you work on a, a fairly wide range of range topics, but focus somewhat on the social aspects of range management. I'm quoting here from the summary, which I expect you wrote, it's on the website. Uh, Extensive livestock production on rangelands requires negotiation between demand for a relatively predictable flow of products and the inherent unpredictability of an arid rangeland environment. There are property and social relations, practices and values that are widespread among pastoralists and ranchers that reflect adaptation to the disequilibrium dynamics of the resource base upon which they depend. My work seeks to understand these factors as part of coupled human-natural systems with the goal of learning how long-term sustainable management of rangelands can be created. So first, I would guess that many listeners may be surprised to hear of really useful rangeland work coming out of Berkeley, (laughs) but I have to say that you and Nathan Sayre are among my favorite writers, and I think you've been highly influential in promoting good rangeland-focused thinking at the grassroots level as well as in academia and among natural resource professionals. Uh, You've spent all of your career in California, I think, so maybe it's just the water you breathe, but I would guess you've heard that sentiment of surprise before. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) You mean ecological surprise? No, surprise at anything good coming out of Berkeley. Oh, oh, about Berkeley, yes, that's true. And it's too bad because Berkeley is a great school. It's the top public institution in the world. And it's really great that we have a range program. We have a range graduate program. And we have 50 million acres of rangeland in California. And I am delighted that we have the opportunity to um, develop management strategies for that rangeland. Good. What I'd like to do is get to a paper that you wrote with Mark Brunson from Utah State on ranching as a conservation strategy for extensive rangeland ecosystems. Uh, But first, maybe distinguish between extensive livestock production and and what I assume is the converse, uh, intensive production. Uh, When I think of intensive production, I think of irrigated pasture or grazed annual crops, which are grown intensively with lots of crop inputs and managed intensively with lots of effort and infrastructure and, you know, which support animals per acre rather than acres per animal. Uh, Extensive livestock production involves uh, domestic animals gleaning from essentially wild, even if not native ecosystems where they're, I guess in my opinion, ideally not changing the fundamental nature of those ecosystems like we do with a a built agricultural environment. I said before, you can't grow corn or a field of triticale on shrubland or savanna without obliterating the shrubland and the savanna. Uh, your thoughts on extensive versus intensive? Well, first of all, I have to say there's a little bit of a gray area there because even there has been extensive livestock production where you graze solely on what comes up on the range all over the world for thousands of years. I think, uh, well, I think sheep were... Well, I'm not going to try to remember how many years exactly it was since the sheep was domesticated, (laughs) but a very long time ago. And today, in most places in the world, while most of the forage production and grazing is on extensive rangelands, as you described, without much modification, uh, some of it is irrigated pasture, some of it is fed hay, sometimes agricultural byproducts to maintain a higher plane of nutrition, Mm -hmm. uh, and especially if the weather's bad. But the fundamental premise is right. As opposed to crop agriculture, uh, which changes the environment, people who graze, ranchers and pastoralists all over the world, they really have to work within the environmental endowment of the um, 
place of the geography of their location. So they need to, they don't, we can't change the weather. It's often too arid or too cold or various conditions uh, on rangelands. And that's thing, something that a lot of people don't understand is traditionally uh, extensive livestock production is has been evolved and adapted on lands where you can't grow crops and there's not enough water to irrigate. And you use the animal uh, to collect the natural forage and then people can uh, eat that because it's very hard for people to eat grass. So uh, pastoralism came into being as a way of using those landscapes. So in terms of geography, it's not really in competition with crop agriculture mm-hmm. when you're talking about extensive livestock. Um, the basic premise, the other part of that that I think is really important is that rangelands in California and, and around the West um, are very important and valuable for their ecological services, if you want to call it, or for the environmental benefits that they offer society. In California, a great deal, maybe I guess most of our rangelands are privately owned, and throughout the West, often the most uh, productive, uh, rich wildlife habitat is in private ownership, because even though a lot of it's public, the Homestead Act encouraged people to claim areas with water, and near water, and so those lands are inherently more productive, um, and then some would argue managed to be more productive. But in California, mm-hmm. it's a it's a really interesting challenge because uh, ranchers own this land; they need to uh, make a profit from it in order to keep it, uh, and they do that, and they want to do that by producing livestock. So they have. Uh, developed management strategies to use the natural lands of California that match the precipitation, the time when the grass is green, um, and all the different characteristics that determine how an animal can grow. So I think it's really important to understand that, that extensive production takes place on what we might call semi-natural, semi-natural lands. And I, I have a story that I can tell you. I, I used to talk about the wonderful open space of our rangelands. I think it's like many millions of acres of privately owned rangeland in California, all in the most rich part Mm -hmm. of the state because these were lands that were allocated by the Spanish instead of the Homestead Act. So we have many large, completely private ranches. And I was saying, we need, this is years ago, I started becoming interested in this right off the bat when I uh, went through graduate school. I was talking about the wonderful open space of ranch lands in California and how we need to work to conserve it. And a rancher friend of mine later said, Lynn, we don't much like it when you talk about open space. Now, of course, I still do, but Mm. this really was very interesting to me. Why did he not like open space? So Mm -hmm. I said, why? And he said, well, because people think we're not there. It implies that nobody lives there. Yeah, it's empty. There's no steward. And this is our home. And we, we really care for our home. We've done, both Mark and I have done numerous projects and surveys and found, and, and Earth Cruder and a number of other of us who do social science projects um, discovered the incredible stewardship ethic of uh, most of the ranchers out there in the West. They often, they've, mm-hmm. I have a friend even in busy California, Berkeley is actually closer to rangeland than any other University of California. We have it right in our mm-hmm. backyard and just over the hills yeah. uh, there is ranching going on. And we have a very good friend um, who told me uh, that, um, that he told me how much he, people frequently tell me how much they care about rangelands. They're very committed. They invite our classes out to see uh, rangelands. And we go often enough that they, they, they trust us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have a really good relationship. So I also see the key to a lot of this um, conservation to be trust mm-hmm. and building that understanding between people. And even though you're saying people are surprised that I'm from Berkeley, I like to go out and um, meet people and talk to ranchers and go to meetings and give talks, and I enjoy convincing them otherwise. <laughs> and that's actually okay. I, I'm sad that there's a big assumption made, but Berkeley's a very large place with a great many different kinds of people. And, uh, oh, sure. And depending on the rancher, they may have the same cynicism regarding any university. They may, <laughs> yeah. And Berkeley. some of them went to Berkeley, actually. That's right. So that's also interesting. But um, yeah, we have, a, we have a pretty good relationship, I think, with uh, ranchers in California. 
for the most part, especially once we've met them or they've seen our right. work. Yeah. You um, wrote in the in the oh. paper that working ranches are promoted as a means of conserving rangeland because working ranches on rangeland protect open space, whether we like the term or not. Uh, it's a great term. I, I try density. to avoid it, but yeah. I, you can't help it, and it really resonates with people. So oh, sure. it's important to... It has a good connotation for most people. Yeah, and I generally, when I use it, I explain. It doesn't mean there's not a steward there. People right. who own that land are proud of what they've done. And that's some of the issue for them is they're worried that people don't understand that the land's beautiful because they've taken care of it and the wildlife is abundant mm -hmm. because they've taken care of it. And they want that recognition. And when we say they're not even there, um, that's, that's hard mm -hmm. for them to take. Or when we make the assumption that they're exploiting the land or that somehow even though They've been there, that my friend over the hill from Berkeley has been on that family ranch, his family, for five generations. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't look that way, and it wouldn't be land that we are so interested in keeping around if they hadn't taken care of it. And right. they wish people would understand that more. Right. Yeah. Uh, you also write that working ranches safeguard ecosystem services and that these are broad social benefits that we as a society should value. Uh, that is in a little bit in contrast, I suppose, to the approach of a lot of environmental organizations whose goal is to protect those landscapes, protect those wide open spaces by removing people from the landscape yeah. and, and removing grazing in order to preserve those same social benefits. Uh, but the social benefits seem to be the common denominator here. In other words, you know, different segments of society differ on how we maintain them. But, but is that a common goal? Am I reading that right? That that oh, there's, maybe the end goal is similar? Well, it's a really interesting thing in California. So first of all, California has been inhabited, managed, and used for time. thousands of years, 14, 15,000 years. Um, there's evidence going back that far in California today, and it's probably longer. So when we think that by taking people out of the picture, we're restoring something or recreating something, what are we recreating? Mm -hmm. I really believe in active management that you, you don't... These fires that we are having in California, they're partly a result of protecting the land. Mm -hmm. We're protecting it to death, right. uh, in my view. The other thing about California is um, the vegetation has changed completely. And the grass, the grasses of California are not native. There are plenty out there. There's a lot of them. And a lot of us would enjoy seeing more, I suppose, but it's what we call a novel ecosystem. There's not really a good way to change it back. So oftentimes I'm asked, can cattle replace antelope? Or can cattle replace um, elk? Well, are they filling the same ecological niche? Well, in some ways, but that ecological niche is gone. The whole thing's different. Mm -hmm. So we have this opportunity and challenge I think, to really think about building the ecosystem and thinking about what we want uh, and how to get there. But it's very hard for people to think that way. They want to restore things to something that they imagine right. existed before. A pre-European condition of some kind. Yeah, yeah. And the, the uh, Native Americans of California were very active in burning, planting, transplanting, harvesting um, all over the state. And we have lost that knowledge right now with, at our peril. The second mm -hmm. thing about that that I think is important is that um, these native grasses, they're huge when it rains. We have an environment where we don't know how much is going to rain at any given time. It's very uh, variable. And so when we say work mm -hmm. within it or adapt to it, it's an, a non-equilibrium environment. So we have to consider that we need to be super flexible. But when it rains and the temperatures are right, this grass can grow five feet tall. And our native species don't do that. Mm -hmm. They don't grow that tall. Uh, and they're not as vigorous. I had a lab project where we planted both native and non-native species, and at the end of the semester, not a single native grass came up. They started to come up like two weeks after the end of the semester. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the non-natives had grown three feet tall, you know, right. just in that same time. They're very vigorous. Um, and grazing now um, is a tool for removing that grass or keeping it under control. We can't necessarily predict exactly what's going to happen in the next year, no matter what we do with management, because the system is fundamentally driven by rain. Mm -hmm. 
But we can remove grass within a year or within a season, and that allows the natives to do better. We have a very good research done by Jamie Marty and David Pike looking at vernal pools. And you wouldn't associate grazing as beneficial to an aquatic system, but in this case it's hugely beneficial because these very rare endemic species that grow inside and outside the pool suffer from those non-native grasses using up the water and shading them out. And grazing has been shown to be very, you have more biodiversity, there's more water in the pond longer, so mm -hmm. endangered tiger salamanders can go through their life cycle and a lot of other species. They're all based on these pools dry up in the summer, so they need a certain period of inundation and grazing increases that period and also protects the plants. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it's hard. We have to do this step by step with science to convince the many people in the environmental community who automatically assume that this must be bad right. to have a cow wandering around. Interestingly enough, the California Rangeland Conservation coalition, which was started by ranchers in California, they got off the ground by um, writing something called the Rangeland Re Resolution, which says we understand a lot of things, but among those it says we understand that grazing can be beneficial for many species. There's a lot of endangered species and threatened and so on that are linked to mm -hmm. positive effects of grazing. Um, and many agencies like and, and entities in California, the Nature Conservancy, the Forest Service, they signed on to this because they understood uh, and had learned this based on science. But, you know, the frustrating thing is that nothing is... You, we have to prove this over and over again. When There's sometimes when it's not good, right? But when it mm -hmm. is a good thing, we have to prove it. Mm -hmm. This Because the assumption we're starting from is we don't... Not we don't know. The assumption in, in the general public... So who care, you know, the, well, anyway, among many people, right. conservation people, many agencies is it's got to be bad. bad. And exactly. so it's not, we're neutral. We don't understand until we have some science is you better do the science to prove to me mm -hmm. that it's not bad. You're guilty until you've been proven innocent. That's exactly right. That's exactly the attitude. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I come from the range community. So I say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. right? Um, the other thing is with these non-native grasses, I guess I've made three or four points now, that they are very flammable and easy mm -hmm. to start on fire. And um, where I live in the Bay Area, the East Bay Regional Parks, which is a wonderful thing to have, all these huge parks all around the the city, um, uses grazing and quite avidly hmm. to reduce fire hazard. Um, grass fires are not the worst kind of fires. They're easier to control, but they, they're a place where fire can start and spread. Right. And so uh, they consider that to be really important. They're, they're surrounded by people and housing in the town, and they can't have fire, um, wildfire. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it goes in concert with prescribed burning. Prescribed burning and grazing can be very complementary, but it's hard to use that much prescribed burning, that close in proximity to town. Right. Well, we do it. We still do it. But, yeah. I had seen some research that I believe Kirk Davies talked about in the episode with him uh, where they had combined targeted grazing and prescribed fire Yeah. Uh, as a kind of a double punch to try to clean up invasive annual grasses. And, of course, in that case, they're actually trying to move the plant community back toward uh, – back toward a native or, you know, the functional equivalent of natives. Uh, in some places like the annual grasslands of California, it's you're just maintaining some kind of a dynamic equilibrium where the goal is to just keep using the grasses because they're not going away. Right. They've been in place for since the 19th century. They came first with the Spanish, mm. 1769, rapidly took over the grassland. We still don't know that much about what the previous grassland was like. It's, mm -hmm. it's an interesting field of study mm -hmm. to try to find fossil evidence and other evidence about grass. Not easy. Right. Um, but they've been there, and people do want to... There are uh, groups uh, that ma manage specifically to try to encourage and restore native grasses, but it's usually not... Um, you can see some improvement if the site is right and the soil is right and the rain is right, but it's very difficult. And, you know, so it, it's just not, it's very unlikely to happen on most of California right. rangelands. <laughs> very unlikely. 
Uh, let's back up just a, a step or two. Can you characterize the problem? We've talked a bit about the desire to maintain open space and habitat, and those are some significant social benefits. Uh, what about the, the negative effects of what happens when you no longer have that open space? You know? mm-hmm. So what if the edges of suburbia spread out? What are the, the, the negative effects of that? Well, we have a tremendous wildlife and plant resources in California. So if you like wildlife, um, it would it's very important to have open lands. And our most productive wildlife habitat is in private ownership. Um, people who live in suburbs like seeing wildlife too. Uh, so that's an important social service. Uh, also hunting and everything else, fish, f- fisheries on private rangelands. Uh, we don't want to lose those. California is pretty developed as a state and has a pretty high population and our open spaces are more and more precious to the people of the country. They're an incredible view shed. It's kind of California. You don't go there expecting to, well, maybe some people do, but you don't go there expecting a big city. You go there expecting a beautiful Mm. Mediterranean landscape. So keeping the land open is really important if you for biodiversity too incredible wildlife resources incredible diversity also sequestration of of carbon um, a large portion of our water supply flows through rangelands in california and if you develop that that becomes a huge uh, water pollution problem and you've also seen we have all seen what happens when we allow development to sort of creep into wildlands um, without a lot of forethought um, and mix houses and and forests and woodlands, they burn up in this climate because it's a very dry, hot summer. I always tell my students, imagine you're a plant and you have to go for eight or nine months without water every year when it's hot. How are you going to survive? Mm-hmm. I mean, the same could be said of us if we don't you know, think about how to s- reduce the risk to our homes and our property of this nine months. The problem is we have very active growth during the rest of the year. All this vegetation grows, and then it dries out over the summer and becomes quite a fire hazard, perfectly naturally. And probably with climate change, it will get worse. We think we'll have more droughts. We just came off the largest drought in history a few years ago. So these kind of things uh, are, are reasons why that open space is so important. It's also true that the California residents are more and more interested um, in the foods that are produced on rangelands um, that are, you know, organic, grass-fed, natural. Those are all things that people will pay a premium for. Um, and and they don't even have to fit in that um, one of those categories. If you're a rancher and you advertise that you're doing sustainable grazing and taking care of the land, that is often what people want. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Not more the important. Certification. Yeah. yeah, and so most of our ranchers are conventional, and that's also yeah. you know a very good product for a healthy product for people. But I remember uh, this rancher said he was raising his sheep, 100% grass fed, and he had his. There's some. It's hard doing this. Is hard for the ranchers, and it's just a developing industry, mm-hmm. genetically and husbandry wise. So people are still quite challenged to do it. But he. We, or arranged where he would drive his uh, packed, you know, slaughtered sheep meat to San Francisco and all around the North Bay and places where there were people and arranges through the internet that people could come meet him there and buy his products. Mm -hmm. And he would take pre-orders. And he said, you know, I'm a little hard of hearing. And so the people would come and they'd buy my product, which I loved, and they would take it. And more often than not, they would say, blah, 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 blah. And I couldn't understand what they were saying. It was sort of under their breath. And he finally said, hey, please tell me what you're saying. And and the person said, oh, I wanted to say thank you for what you're doing. And he was so pleased by that, that people appreciated that he was making this effort to bring them uh, products direct from the ranch. So it's also an important food resource, as I mentioned, water, wildlife, Carbon sequestration, our rangelands hold uh, a great deal of carbon. And with our normal management practices, that carbon's protected in the soil um, and there for a long, long time. So it's important to maintain that. We don't plow the soil. We don't overturn it. It stays intact. And our, our standard grazing practices in California protect the soil from erosion, which would cause loss of carbon from the soil. Uh, yeah, we have research showing there's substantial carbon pools in the grasslands annual or perennial. 
Yeah, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it may be useful. Uh, you mentioned in the paper that the Chicago Climate Exchange had a, a program about 10 years ago to look at carbon mm. markets and pay people to sequester carbon. Yeah. And we looked into that a bit in Washington, and as I recall, it lasted for a couple of years and then faded out. One reason was that it didn't provide enough money to incentivize ranchers to manage in a, perhaps a way different than what they were doing in order to match the contract. Yeah. So one, it didn't pay very much, and two, there was not enough evidence on exactly how much carbon could be sequestered with range practices. And then I think the third thing was that uh, the evidence at the time indicated that degraded rangelands had higher potential to sequester carbon. And so you were paid for active sinking, not how much it's holding. And so it would pay more for people that had degraded rangelands well, and incentivized the thing, that. The thing is that those programs are based on demonstrated additionality. Right. So if you have a program like that and it's funded to reduce admissions and you unfortunately you give it to people that have already don't have admissions or have very low emissions right um, then you're allowing uh, you're you're not lowering emissions so that's the problem right. there are programs I don't know that much about them in Europe now they're starting to talk about and maybe have some avoided deforestation funding programs where they will help people to maintain their forest. Um, and avoid deforestation. So um, that's not additionality because the forest is already there. Right. But it's just saying we anticipate You're paying that, for storage. Yes. Right. And we could do that. We could have avoided derangification. Yeah. But it takes um, political will to do that, um, and that's a long time coming. California is kind of on the forefront of that. They are trying to develop some programs for increasing carbon sequestration with soil amendments and other kinds of things. Um, but I, I think the storage is really the key and maintaining that storage. So I hope we come up with programs that reward people for that because mm -hmm. many people do do that and could use a little money because mm -hmm. many of our ranchers are land rich and cash poor. And the way that you get that money out is unfortunately by selling the, money, the ranch to the highest bidder and that's going to often be a developer mm -hmm. who's going to convert it to something else. Or intensive agriculture, too. Right. Um, the other thing about, I forget all the points you made, but the other thing about one of your points is you said they don't want to follow the management protocols. Unfortunately, management protocols in rangelands are often, unfortunately, developed by people who got their education somewhere else, and they don't understand California rangelands. Mm -hmm. And so that's the other thing that's a little irksome is ranchers think they know what they're doing and they've been doing it for a long time, as I mentioned earlier, and the carbon is in the soil. Um, and oftentimes these sort of one-size-fits-all protocols don't fit. Mm -hmm. And with the amount of money that was available for that program and the change that they would have to do is often sort of contraindicated by everything they knew about how to sustainably manage rangelands in California. I'm mm -hmm. afraid that that happens a lot, and it's unfortunate. It's one of the reasons why good people suffer sometimes when you start saying you need to do this, you need to rotate your cows, you need to do that. We have such incredible diversity and uh, such good ranchers in California. They all have ideas about how to graze and what they should do. And, of course, those are developed in accordance with the particular environment that each of them is in. Each ranch is unique and has different resources. Right. I think that's true everywhere in the West. And you have to plan within those resources. And we think that's really diverse, that that adds diversity to the state, that people are doing different things in different places. Mm -hmm. um, and it, would, it, it just doesn't work to have a blanket policy or recipe that everybody's supposed to apply. And most people know that. Yeah. But when you start saying, we'll give you money, you know, and if you manage in this particular way, uh, that's that's constrain their options. Yeah, I want to come back to incentives in a second, but a, a quick question about development. Uh, you made a comment in the paper that there is some evidence that cluster development really didn't work to maintain some some of these ecological benefits. Uh, I think that's interesting, and in quite a bit of the West, I think most states or most um, you know county jurisdictions oftentimes have rules about zoning where if a farmer wants to break up a quarter section, it has to be broken up into 20s or 40s, and then which is too small to do anything with and big enough that if you ruin it, it's a really big problem. And so the idea was that if you, <clears throat> if you had, uh, you know, say a five-acre piece or a two-acre piece that were all in the middle of that and then left the rest of it untouched, 
that that should work, but there's evidence that that doesn't work. Is that right? Well, from what I've seen, there's a number of problems. Who manages that land? It's often a homeowners association, um, and they're kind of they're managing it um, in ways that may not necessarily be uh, the best for the environment. And you still, even though you have a cluster, it's not nearly the same as having 5,000 acres all together undeveloped. I mean, that's home for elk and for deer and for mountain lions and everything else. Whereas the kind of bits and pieces of land that are left around a cluster development may be better for some things, but it's not as effective for many oh, vernal pools. Because you've got the people there, they're going to have dogs and cats and they're going to mm -hmm. do stuff. And I don't want to say that's bad. It's just that you need places where the animals are free of that if you want to maintain certain mm -hmm. kinds of, of species. I'm not against people going into the wildlands and seeing all this stuff, but it's different from if you go to a place and you know that you're not supposed to let your dog off the leash or you don't let your cat wander around, you visit it because it's a big natural open space area. Mm -hmm. um, it's different from, well, the, the land in my backyard is this piece of land that we didn't develop. And right. it's just gets used a lot differently. Right. And changes so. the composition of the wildlife species that are present. Right. For yes, those that absolutely. Are more opportunistic in a human dominated environment. Um, where I live, we have an East Bay Regional Park behind us, which is thousands of acres. So, but right against the border, uh, we have people feeding feral cats because they love feral cats. Google, Google headquarters is making, apparently, according to what I heard on the radio, is making uh, some of the burrowing owls disappear by feeding feral cats yeah. next to a burrowing owl preserve. You know, mm -hmm. you, there's just some conflicting uses that you want right. to avoid for a, a, some wildlife. And uh, also, um, I'm on this uh, social media, I guess, next door or something where you converse with your neighbors and people's ideas about we need to get rid of the coyotes because they're threatening our cats. You know, people have different ideas and mm -hmm. are fighting about that all the time. Um, yeah, it's, it, 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 I'm sure in a, that that becomes an issue with any place where you have a, a small area of, of uh, wildland right next to people's houses. You need buffers. Yeah. Yeah. And oftentimes ag land or ranch land sometimes is a very good buffer. I wanted to tell you a story about Mount Diablo State Park. Mm -hmm. When I was a new professor, they decided to remove grazing from the state parks. And I went to some of the hearings about that. And the, the most um, powerful advocates for returning grazing to the parks were people who lived on its perimeter and who were afraid of fire. Mm. So it can, and they knew the rancher, they would call him up and say, there's a, you know, the, these things can work out, but you've got both this buffer area where you have all these influences and you have a core. But I mean, I'm not, it's not true that residential people are necessarily um, antagonistic. Yeah. Sometimes they see the mutual mm -hmm. benefit and work towards it. That was really interesting to me. We have a local rancher whose neighbor that lives on the edge of his property uh, will call him and ask him if he can move cows into the pasture next to his house when he has company coming because... <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> because they like to see the animals. Yeah. No, people do. And we don't we don't learn about those people often enough. Right. You know, we, um, we hear about people who are complaining. Right. You, you hear their voice. Um, I have a, uh, a colleague and student who did a paper based on um, posted pictures that people took on social media. And it was really interesting how many people really wanted to take pictures of themselves in the parks with mm -hmm. a cow nearby mm -hmm. and a cow in the background. There's a lot of people who enjoy that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they like agriculture too. So it, it's become cliche to say that grazing is better than condos, but oh, yeah. the unspoken precursor, precursor to that I think is grazing may be bad, but it's better than houses. But I think I hear you saying two things. You know, one, that grazing is usually good and it's better than houses. And two, even where grazing is done badly, it may still be better than houses because it protects, maybe protect is the wrong word, but uh, you know, maintains open space, which has habitat value even if it's not managed well. Oh, no, I think grazing should be managed well. I really do think that otherwise people won't continue to support it. Yeah. You know, it's really important that stewards steward 
um, in terms of one of the ways you build a relationship with the public and with your neighbors is by being a conscientious, good manager. So I, right. I firmly believe in that. I don't think that the long-term outlook for bad grazing is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. The social social sustainability of grazing long-term depends on doing it well enough that it doesn't cause a lot of problems. Doing it well and trying to get people to recognize what you're doing and uh, appreciate it. It's Those are a couple of things that I think... Uh, groups in California are really interested in. And one of our biggest advocates in California is the Nature Conservancy, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a very interesting thing. So I I, I don't think, I, I just don't want to see badly managed grazing. And I've been arguing for years that it's not economically sustainable for very long no. to graze badly. And so I think a lot of the situations where that was happening have uh, kind of starved out it's also true that our grassland is an incredibly resilient, tough mm-hmm. grassland. These annual grasses are very good forage um, and fairly easy to manage. Our main goal is to protect the soil from erosion. Mm-hmm. So the, the tricky stuff is when you need to protect a riparian area or you need to protect a particular kind of habitat or you don't want to graze this area during the right or the wrong season. Those things do come into play. Mm-hmm. Um but in terms of just straightforward managing the grass, it's not too hard. We protect the soil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know in much of the West, because ranchers are often asset rich and cash poor, uh, for some of them, the ability to liquidate some of that land is is their retirement plan. Yes. How big a problem is that? And is that primarily driven by uh, economics? Is or is it, you know, is there an, uh, an upside down age class distribution in the ranching community that means that there's just no future for it, even if it was profitable? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, our ranching community has been in its early 60s for as long as I've been doing surveys. So I don't see a huge growth in age. I see a slow mm-hmm. growth in the age of the primary landowner. I think it was like 59 when I was a student. And last time I did a survey, it was more like 60 so or 61 so they're not aging no That's no i think that people don't really want to stop and so they keep doing it as long as yeah. they keep the ranch as long as they can before yeah. they retire and turn it over to their kids um the problem is some young people um don't want to ranch and so then what do you do i mean we have young people who want mm-hmm. to ranch but have no ranch and we have uh, young people who grew up on ranchers who don't want to ranch. Mm-hmm. And then the price of a ranch is so high. Um, it's very hard for um, a young person to get into it who wasn't raised in it with a ranch. And it's very hard um, to, for example, if you have three kids and you're, you pass away, it's very hard for any one of them, maybe only one of them wants to continue ranching. It's almost impossible for them to buy out the other two, right? right? So you wind up fragmenting ranches that way. Estate planners say <clears throat> fair is not equal and equal is not fair. Well, well yes. Maybe so splitting it's not a good idea. Yeah, no. Well, ecologically, it certainly isn't. Right. Yeah. But it, it, that is a thing. It's a dilemma. Families, yeah. we know, families, this is like source of strife in any family eventually mm-hmm. if there's any assets to be held. But um, uh, so um, the, the conservation easement is a valuable tool in that area. It's not a perfect tool, but I've, I've talked to ranchers who said I put a conservation easement on my land so I could get some cash to pay out a decent inheritance to the children who don't want to ranch, and also because this way they can't break it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nobody else can either, and they like that. Some people like that. Some people feel strongly the other way. And one of the things right. that makes it work is it is voluntary. Uh, voluntary things work much better with yeah. your California rancher than something imposed on them. So conservation easements are have worked really well. We have a lot in California. Um, unfortunately. You mentioned cluster development. Cluster conservation is good, where you can have several Mm -hmm. nearby instead of scattered across the landscape. Mm -hmm. The Marin Agricultural Land Trust um, has a concentrated area. They try to to purchase conservation easements in. So they're good. They're great. But they cost money. The money has to come from somewhere. A lot of it comes from the farm bill, a lot of it from donors. And they're controversial among farmers and ranchers. Yeah, and some of them will donate. 
Mm-hmm. Interestingly, um, they are controversial. Not not that much in California, or maybe I mm-hmm. hang with people that like them. I don't know. But um, the more exposure, you know, environmental regulations. Let's see. Let's take one like. Um, about water quality or stock ponds. Stock ponds are valuable wildlife habitat, it turns mm-hmm. out. In in the Bay Area, half of the endangered habitat for... Is stock ponds. Yeah, for yeah. In, uh, tiger salamanders is stock ponds. So it turns out it's very valuable. And the people who have re- remained on the outskirts of the city that are still ranching almost in town, that have their cows on the East Bay Regional Parks, and they have come... There are incentive programs available for environmentally friendly management, for fixing those stock ponds and maintaining them in a way that's friendly to those species. Mm-hmm. And they recognize that, and they can put in uh, conservation easements on parts of the land or all of it. So they see a lot of incentives, whereas uh, people who are further out uh, see a lot of regulation. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. People, urban ranchers, you might want to call them, have learned to look for the incentives and work with the NRCS or or the parks, or to, to capture those in incentives and those benefits and the value of those benefits. The problem is they are producing benefits, all this fire management, and they're paying for the privilege to do it right now. Right. So how that works out, I think the urban ranchers are working on that. Um, there's rural ranchers that are too, but they're just a little, there's still a lot that don't mm-hmm. understand and don't trust. Hmm. And sometimes we're not very good at presenting opportunities to people. Right. You go out there in some kind of uniform and with a map, and you say, "Look, we I'm can do this," and people immediately freak out. Right. So, you know, the black helicopters are coming. <laughs> yeah. So we need yeah. to work on communication and building trust too. And oftentimes, the people that are around and have exposure to students and and to all kinds of people have learned to build that trust. Like the man who used to graze at Mount Diablo, the landowners mm-hmm. knew him, liked him, trusted him. Uh, mm-hmm. That's something we need to build. Mm-hmm. At the risk of offending uh, some people, what about uh, what's sometimes called lifestyle ranchers who have a small number of animals? It's not their primary source of mm. income. As a result, they're not dependent on that income and, uh, and su- support ranching with, with, outside, mm. with outside money. Mm. This morning in a, a session on non-equilibrium dynamics, David Brisky and Sam Fielendorf were talking about mm-hmm. the risks of decoupling livestock from the landscape through you know, various practices like supplemental feed that may stretch carrying capacity to the mm-hmm. point where it's mm-hmm. not healthy in the long mm-hmm. run, at least not ecologically. Mm-hmm. Uh, to what extent do you think that's a, a problem? Well, to the second part of that, that's a management problem if it exists and it can be worked on and fixed. Mm-hmm. These are just management problems. They can be fixed. The for, first one you mentioned is lifestyle ranchers, and you associate that with small numbers of livestock. But in fact, most ranchers supplement their income. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter how many mm-hmm. animals they have. There's a few, there's some that don't. Even the King Ranch is selling pickup trucks. You know, yeah. one of the largest ranches in the United right. States. Most people do supplement their income because income from livestock can be very variable. And they have to compete with all this intensively farmed livestock. And we want them to stay out there because of the valuable things they're doing for us in California. But uh, Mm -hmm. they can't quite make it just on livestock. And maybe some years, yes. But then there's that year with no rain or several Mm -hmm. years with no rain. So it's it's hard to have a steady, reliable source of income. That's what I was talking about. We're trying to manage a disequilibrium system for consistent income. It's hard. so most of them do supplement their their income, and there's all kinds of consequences to that. Um, people used to take their livestock long distances up in the mountains or do these interesting traditional practices. It's hard to do that if you have to show up for a job, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's affected ranch families, I think, and, and ranching. So uh, then you, I, I, there, there may be a category of ranchers that has a small number of livestock. It's just hard for me to divide Right. That up. Well, even also, the large ranchers would almost uniformly say they don't do it for the money. That's exactly right. You know, but the rate of return investments may be three to five percent, and if they were in it for the money, they would take those assets and put them somewhere else. Absolutely. And, make more money. and the thing that we unfortunately the main money is in the land appreciation. Right. You know, tremendous. Right. But um, they, um, the, yes, 
my friend Mitch McLaren, who's here at the conference, uh, in 1980-something interviewed ranchers across the state. And we had cooperative extension and scientists out there trying to show ranchers how to remove oaks, you know, in the 50s and 60s, <laughs> 60s especially, so they could have more grass because the assumption yeah. was everybody needs more grass so they can make more beef and they'll get richer. Right. And uh, he talked to people in the 80s and said, uh, you know, one of his questions was, if we removed these oaks, you'd have more grass. Why don't you remove the oaks? And they said, one of the, my favorite answers was, well, then it'd be a farm. This is a ranch. Yeah. You know, this is my home. Yeah. I love, I did a survey when I was a student, and one of the main reasons people gave for ranching, everybody, was I like to work in natural beauty. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, people are really committed to making a product and making an income from what they do. Most mm-hmm. of them are. I guess if you, they're really committed to it. And uh, people from the California Rangeland Trust um, tell me that, or the California Rangeland Conservation Coalition, both great organizations, um, tell me that one of the problems in working with ranchers to get them to be part of the coalition, the coalition's goals is to promote grazing uh, together with agencies and consultants and all mm-hmm. these people. We, they do science-based symposia and stuff like that. It's a great organization. But um, she said one of the problems is that one of the sources of a lack of trust is that ranchers don't think that many people in the environmental community, even ones that want grazing for various purposes, recognize that they have a bottom line. Mm-hmm. They don't, nobody can lose money for, you know, consistently forever. Yeah. And sometimes they feel like people don't take that into account. They don't, they don't recognize that need to have a business, and that business is very important to them. So I don't want to... Uh, say that just because people are after lifestyle, they're not after an income and right. a business. Right. And just because it may not support all their needs doesn't mean it's not an important component of it. Right. And I thought that was really interesting that they think we don't understand that. With public lands, yeah. it's really strange. People seem A lot of people seem to believe that it's always wrong to earn an income from using public lands. And yet, your kayak salesman, your tour guide, your hunting guide, right. all those people are doing They're that. They're totally dependent on that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good pivot to, I guess, some wrap-up on conclusions about what we can do about promoting ranching for the purpose of conserving land. Uh, Nathan Sarah said in his intro to the book that we could define rangelands as places where more lucrative economic activities mm-hmm. have not yet taken root. Right. Is that too cynical? And, you know, do... Well, Does it require some kind of macro-level manipulation of economics to to prop things up? What are your thoughts on how we can make this work? Well, I, th- I think an element of what he's saying is what I said at the beginning, that rangelands are generally not arable, not suitable for development. Right. But if a mining operation comes along, they have a lot of money. Um, they buy ranches and then they mine them. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he's right in that... Um, if you can grow a crop, it's worth far more per acre than grazing livestock, or if you can mine something. Right. So the rangelands are the are the hills in California. They're, they're the hills mm. that generally don't have great soil. They're steep. They're oak woodlands. You know, they're, that is true. They're the places that, but unfortunately, you know, increasingly they're worth more money for housing. That's mm-hmm. kind of the crisis. So it's politically legitimate to try to incentivize keeping them in open space. Well, I think it is. I mean, yeah. I've talked to people who disagree. If this is a service to us, the general public, I don't own a ranch, but I love to see them. I love to know they're out there. I love the wildlife. Um, I love the water. And mm-hmm. I love the, I think, storing carbon is and even sequestering it is a really good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, all those things are worth something to us as a public. And it's worth our investment. I think that's the premise behind the farm bill incentives that they offer, and uh, for through the resource conservation districts and the NRCS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been a major shift in the last fifteen to twenty years between incentivizing not farming versus incentivizing doing something well, stewarding well. Yeah, and I was just reading in a paper some huge uh, number of the insects of the world are dying off, which scares me very badly. Huh. Um, and a lot of it's from either urbanization or farming. 
Um, so these rangelands are one of the last refuges for those creatures right. because ranchers don't tend to use a lot of chemicals or insecticides or all those things on the landscape. So I think we don't even understand all the things that they provide for us. You know, those insects are the foundation mm -hmm. of much of our ecological mm -hmm. life. They're the bottom of the food chain. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, sometimes they're at the top in my case, right. but generally the bottom. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that interests many of us in the rangeland profession and in rangeland-based livestock production. It's nearly the only form of food and fiber production that relies on naturally occurring plant communities that are still able to provide all these suite of ecological goods and services. Uh, and I really think that people are increasingly able to see that. One of the other things to consider, I mentioned, you know, forests sequester more carbon. Shrublands do sure. too, woody vegetation does. It burns, and the carbon in rangelands right. does not. Right. Most of it doesn't. So that's another interesting thing we have to consider in California. Not that we shouldn't have forests. Just saying that they ha they're an important part of the whole picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very good. Any final thoughts? Thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk about things Thank that you. I love and feel strongly about. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture.